How can the races present in your world affect the development of cities and industries? What do armed lizards and great apes have in common? How does convergent evolution influence world building? Does anybody know where I can find a dwarf with dreadlocks? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. Hello there. I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. In this podcast, we, your hosts, explore settings in genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you, our listeners. Last time, we continued our exploration of the peoples of Alteran with uh, the diverse Barrelanx, my very favorite of the races. And now we'll conclude our discussion with the still sophisticated Silva. Bit of a portmanteau there. Ah, the Silva. So now my question is, who are the Silva? Well, you see... De Silva, they are very simple people, yeah. I'm going to stop that now because that could potentially be horribly offensive to somebody. And that's not what we're about here. Right. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I could not stop myself from giving the island-dwelling people a Jamaican accent. <laughs> yeah, and pulling inspiration for fictional accents from real-world languages and cultures is a lot easier than coming up with your own because go figure there's certain ways that people talk and unless you're creating a language that has sounds that are not normally heard in the languages that we know on earth your accent is probably going to come out similar to something on this planet whether you intend for it to or not. Exactly. And further, I actually kind of put a little bit of consideration into it because, um, spoiler warning, the Silva are based on great apes. If you've ever seen an ape, you know that they have a very particular set to their lower facial features. They don't have quite the same setup that our upper and lower jaws do. And that is going to change the way that the sounds that they make come out of their mouths. And so I wanted to incorporate something that would give that little bit of fun flair, but also incorporate the fact that they draw structure may not be situated in the same way. Yeah, there's actually a really good, there's a really neat video I saw on that of Frick. I can't actually remember the actor's name, even though he's an actor that I really admire. Um, he played Matthew... Crawley and the Beast in the remake. Right, right, yeah, how he sat and figured out how he wanted the Beast to talk. Yeah, and he, like, he was talking about, okay, we're doing the the very posh accent, so we're gonna drop the jaw a little bit, here's how his face is, and so he kind of tried to manipulate his jaw into basically the closest approximation that a human being could get to what the Beast's facial structure was like, and just started talking to see what it was like. And that's how he came up with the beach, the beast's uh, speech patterns. And so you kind of did something similar. Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens. Yes. We love you, Dan Stevens. Your beast was fantastic. I'm, I'm sorry. I forgot your name. It's all right. That's what we have research for. It's okay. <laughs> I'm bad at celebrities. I tend to ignore their personal lives 
as much as possible and focus on their performances, which means I usually just know them as the, the lady who played that one character, the guy who played that other douchebag. <laughs> I'm I'm decent at celebrity names, but but uh, I definitely just googled that. So <laughs> thanks, Google. I for one welcome our magnanimous old robot overlords. <laughs> oh yes. Anyways. Let's get down to monkey business, shall we? But they're not monkeys, they're apes. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's that's true. That's true. I did just establish that earlier, and already I'm flinging feces in their faces. <laughs> that's a monkey joke. So what do the Silva actually look like? So, essentially, the design that I wanted to go with for them was something along the lines of if they had undergone a similar evolutionary chain as to how we arrived at humans, but kept more of the great ape physique and overall body style, so to speak. So they're shaped roughly similar to, you know, purely bipedal humanoids, but they do still retain the slightly longer arm structure and slightly shorter leg structure. So they're still perfectly capable of doing all of the things that a great ape could, such as knuckle walking if they decided to do so, or uh, brachiation through treetops, which is important because they live in a densely forested jungle. Yeah, it would be important to be able to to get through the trees if you have you know if you live there also can we just stop for a quick second and talk about how great of a term brachiation is Mm. it's good that's a really really great term it's a great term for meaning swinging from tree branch to tree branch (laughs) it sounds so fancy for something so simple and i love it wait so why do they call it a brachiosaurus is it just because it has a long swingy head maybe Also, aren't Brachiosaurus not real? I think that's Brontosaurus. You might be right. Either way. So the reason the reason that Brachiosauruses are called Brachiosauruses, uh, they their name literally means uh it's what is it, arm lizard. So <laughs> Brachio is probably related to arm. Um so Brachiation is 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 like arm movement arm arm swinging arm motion, basically. basically yeah <clears throat> um so brachiosaurus is, is is arm lizard so just i don't really know why because they just got a long neck and not not long arms but you know what i'm just gonna go with it it's fine <laughs> yeah it's not like we require a whole lot of sense when it comes to dinosaurs uh, so according to Wikipedia, I don't know how, how far I would take the information there, but uh, in it's in reference to its proportionately long arms, I guess. So proportional to its body, it has long arms. Yeah, that would make sense because the, the front half is definitely elevated compared to the rear. So it does have longer fore legs than it does rear legs, but they're not technically arms. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, you know, T.I.L. That's that's your your animal fact for the day. Animal fact for the day. Reptile fact for the day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the the Silva, so there are like humanoid-ish eight people. 
and they live in a densely populated jungle. What what inspired you to come up with these particular people? This is going to be another really simple answer. I love apes. They they are hands down one of my favorite species that we share a planet with. There you go. They are phenomenally powerful creatures, but they're not overly aggressive. The only time you really can figure out just how strong a gorilla is is if you've done something to piss it off. Right. If you, I mean, gorillas can be pretty aggressive if you get in their business, uh, but you just don't. Period. Yeah. Like, I don't. I don't want to get anywhere near a silverback. No, thank you. Goodbye. Don't mess with <laughs> them. You won't have a problem with them. And don't mess with their kids. <laughs> it's one of those things because they're 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 big. Like, I love big mammals. Um, for anybody who does know me, rhinos are my thing. Um, but I love big animals. And part of that is because I really like predator-prey interactions. And I find it really interesting when they don't really have predators. Um, when the adults of the species just don't have predators and how they interact with the ecology around them. Yeah, they like plants and bugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like like rhinos are really big and they eat grass. They don't act, and like trees and twigs and bushes and things. They they don't actually eat. They're not omnivores. They're just herbivores. And a lot of large mammal species are like that. That's my that's that's my area of interest just in general. So I agree with you that that apes are fantastic. Yeah, and like we talked about last week with the rule of awesome. It can be a great starting point for new things for your world. I really like gorillas. Let's put gorilla people in this world. Okay, now where do we go from here? Well, that's a good question. Where do we go from here? We've decided that we like gorillas and we want to make gorillas a people. So how do we make them a people? Well, the first thing we do is we establish uh, very early that gorillas are actually pretty intelligent as far as other species go. Uh, So let's exemplify that and make them particularly intelligent as a people. Uh, Someone who values research and learning and curiosity and investigation and just looking out at the world and thinking, hmm, I wonder what makes that tick. And then I decided, okay, well, but they're still gorillas. Uh, Silverbacks, they're you know, a very large mammal. They're very physically powerful. So let's let, let's retain that. Okay, they're still very physically strong. Why is that? Well, partially because of their own nature to begin with, partially because they're also really good martial artists. Because, oh, hey, here's a fun thought. Like I mentioned earlier, they're not overly outwardly aggressive unless provoked. Maybe given the extra bit of intelligence from evolution, these guys actually don't like fighting. They don't, you know, believe in violence. Okay, this is a good idea. Let's continue. How, how, how does this work? Well, okay, maybe they don't like the idea of a fist. When you're closing your hand into a fist, you're closing your heart off and you're closing your mind off to the possibility of anything other than a violent interaction. So we have an intelligent, physically powerful martial artist ape-like species who uses an open-handed grappling combat style they thrust they you know use your own momentum against you but they don't outright punch you because they don't believe in closing their hand into a fist 
now we're onto something. Definitely. It's a really interesting line of thinking there um, because it sort of turns a lot of stereotypes and a lot of um, a lot of sort of predisposed notions on it, their heads, basically. Mm-hmm. And it tracks with real world martial arts philosophies as well. There are arts out there where the goal is to beat each other into a pulp. I do not practice those arts. I am almost a second degree, second degree black belt in a martial art called Choi Kwang Do, uh, first degree black belt, purple stripe, which is a martial art all about self-defense. And our first lesson is if you can run, run. If you can talk your way out of a fight, talk your way out of a fight. And I was taught by my instructors and taught my students in return, if you're ever in a verbal confrontation, and you feel the need to put your hands up in case of in case you know you feel like the person who's confronting you is about to get physical we teach our students put your hands up with your hands open because if joe schmo across the street sees what happens and something does go down and the police ask joe schmo for a statement if joe schmo witness saw your hands closed he's going to tell the police that you were raring for a fight. But if you're backing away slowly and your hands are open like this, you get, well, the listeners can't see my video, but if you have your hands open in front of you, that's a defensive posture. And Joe Witness is going to tell the police, hey, Carrie didn't want to fight. She was trying to get away from that guy and he swung at her. Right. And a lot of that is about body language. We read body language really well um, as a species. Um, and I think a lot a lot of it has to do with, with how you position your physical body in space um, to give that perception of, of wanting to protect yourself, but by, by trying not to instigate a, um, a physical fight. Mm-hmm. And so the Silva's mentality of keeping your hands open all the time not only tracks to the practical purposes of an open-handed posture if you don't want to fight somebody. But I think the extra step of having the philosophy of closing your hands means closing your heart. I think that's really freaking poetic and awesome. Definitely. It was a good train of thought that I decided to chase and it, it, it really paid off in dividends because that sort of core to their philosophy really helped shape the rest of the work that I put into the species. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, laying that groundwork helps you to build more onto that. Because obviously these are very intelligent creatures, but they're nonviolent. So, all right, they live in a jungle, but they're a civilized people. Well, obviously they're not going to start cutting down all of the trees. They're going to do something similar to what the Baralanks do and actually work the trees into architecture. And so Silva villages are just seamlessly integrated into the canopies of the jungle as these glorious uh sort of elvish architecture lots of swoops and swooshes and no real hard angles or lines everything just blending together into the natural canopy of the trees because obviously the trees are a living thing they don't want to hurt them right now i have i have a question that's on on more morphology rather than rather than the philosophy that is is in the silva so a so we were talking about gorillas now do they 
always take like do they always look like gorillas to an extent or is it is it really more like the apes in general so like orangutans or um chimpanzees or um like gibbons uh, I primarily base them on the great ape because those are my personal favorite. And in fact, as you mentioned, the silverbacks, that is where I drew the name from was the silver coloration of the back fur and just putting it in their own terms, da silva, silver. That is, that is really clever. And I absolutely did not follow that. I mean, like I didn't, didn't make that connection until just now, so... Perfect. I like it. And that's actually, even though I know it's primarily a uh, a male trait for the actual silverback gorillas, uh, it's something that is pretty much ambivalent between the genders because I decided to adopt it into another morphological thing where as they age, the silver fur spreads from their back and sort of winds down the arms. Okay. In kind of like a vine-ish pattern. Neat. Yeah, I liked it. All right. Okay. Now we can get back to philosophy. I just wanted to know because that's because I care. I love connections to real world animals and plants and, and things. So obviously, their home is an archipelago. It's a chain of islands. It's definitely and totally out there as a possibility that other islands may have other categorizations of apes that evolved uh, into basically a cousin species. Hmm. So you might have ones that were more based on the orangutans or the chimpanzees. So I like me some gorillas, but I mean, when I was a kid, I loved anything that had similar color hair to me. I'm a redhead, for those who do not know. Um, So orangutans were my favorite because they look red. Um, Yep. And so that has carried over into my adult life. I love orangutans. Literally just like I started liking them because they have the same color hair as me. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and we're talking right now about a very small portion of the planet, so there could be other places around the world that the characters that we're dealing with right now haven't explored yet that have an orangutan branch of the Silva family. And they might not call themselves Silva, they probably call themselves something else. Exactly, and... That's actually a real-world phenomena where things can evolve on different points in the planet in very similar, if not identical, fashions. Right, and it, it a lot of that comes down to their habitats, too. So, like, convergent evolution is one of my very favorite concepts in evolution in general, and we've already talked about one of my favorite animals that, that, that did that. Um, I think it was in the first episode. Um, but, yeah, so convergent evolution happens, so you could very well see two different species evolving in the exact same way because they because they live in similar environments in different places on the planet so yeah it's it's fun stuff it's a thing we like and uh go figure this planet with a lot of uh energy lines crisscrossing about it you know convergence kind of works yeah things coming together it's like a theme or something crazy i know it's like I put thought into this or something. A lot. A lot of thought. So so much thought. So we're developing this these eight people, these Silva. We've decided they're intelligent, but still powerful. We've decided that they practice a martial art. And this all bundles together into the idea that the Silva very much 
prioritize and value the idea of the individual seeking their version of perfection. They highly value individuality, pursuing your own path, doing things the way that you think they need to be done because that's what works best for you. And this is why they both are very intelligent and like learning new things and satisfying curiosities and also physically train themselves to maintain that level of power and agility and grace that you might expect from something described as being a very efficient martial artist because they want that balance. They want that center point of, hey, I am the best version of myself. And that's one of the things that like we, we can connect with really well, because that's kind of what humans are trying to do. We're trying to be the best versions of ourselves. Um, that's one of the reasons why we study at university. One of the reasons why we have goals and, and try to meet them is that we are trying to be the best versions of ourselves. So we can find that connection between us and this, this race of people. And we talked about, I think, I think it was last episode, we talked about how finding that connection is the only reason you're going to keep reading something. Mm -hmm. Now for the Silva saying, you know, that they're very individualistic, would you say that they live more solitary lives out in the world or are they also kind of community oriented where, okay, you're on journey, you're on your journey. I'm on my journey. Let's walk together and help each other out. They are very communal. They love being around anyone and everything because every different person that they can interact with in their own life is a different angle that they can look at something from, it's a different thing that they can experience, different stance that they can learn from. You know, what makes this person do what they do the way they do it versus how this person does the things that they want to do? You know, how do their separate goals align? How do their separate goals, you know, create discord and how can that be resolved? They are, they are very much almost tirelessly curious about the world and everything that lives in it. They want to figure it all out. It's one big puzzle that they feel compelled to solve. I really like that. So, so that's one of the, that's, <laughs> it's really funny because I, I say that the Baralanx are my favorite, but now that I learn more about how the Silva culture kind of works, now I think Silva might be my favorite. <laughs> I just think all of them are my favorite, so really. There's there's nothing wrong with that, and that makes me happy because it means I'm making things that are compelling. Well, yeah, definitely. I think like part of the reason why I decided to go into biology as a field is that I want to be able to place to, to sort of problem solve, or I guess ecology is a field. I want to be able to problem solve um, and learn everything I can about how the natural world works and how it solves its problems so that we can kind of learn from that. Um, so now I found a connection between me and the Silva. So there you go. And I'm sure that they would freaking love that you're studying conservation. <laughs> I think both of, the, both of those races would be happy that I'm studying conservation from what I understand. Wouldn't find too much opposition to that idea there. <laughs> so would it be pretty common then to find Silva explorers other places in the world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because if you don't, I mean, if you don't travel, you can't learn new things. Uh, exactly. You can't learn how other people do things. You can't, yeah, you have to, you have to be able to leave where you're, where you know, in order to learn new things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
they, uh, they, they love to travel. They love to interact with new people. They love going back to places that they've been to, to check up on the people that they knew there, maybe meet some new people in the process. So are they really social then? Incredibly social. Uh, it's actually more difficult to get them to shut up. <laughs> now I kind of have this image in my head of like a guild of wandering merchants and it's comprised all of Silva and they go around you know they have their routes that they go on and they collect stories at all the places they stop and then tell those stories at the other places they stop and they've got all these exotic goods that you know people in some random village that no one else thinks to stop at would ever get to see and now all these people get to learn all this new cool stuff so I should probably mention how much the Silva love storytelling (laughs) stories are the only things the silva have a very concrete rule about and that is the idea that you never write a story down because if you bind a story to paper then that story is then set it can't be changed it can't be altered and it can't be improved upon a story to them is a a living, a breathing thing that can grow and change based on who it's told to, when and where, who they tell it to. And that is a very wonderful thing to them. They love books, don't get me wrong. They will collect books on philosophy, mathematics, architecture, so on and so forth, but they don't do stories as a bound tone. That is really interesting. What about history? Like a collection of facts rather than... That's fine. But if you're talking about... It would have to be just straight facts. This event took place here. These were the people involved. Now, if you want to get into like historical recounting, mm -mm. that's something that has to be told person to person because that's going to vary based on who was there and what side they were on. So they would approve of the fact that I have had a a story idea uh, in a world for about eight years now, maybe nine, then I haven't written it down and it changes every time I tell the story. <laughs> That's fine. Each telling of it is valid and every change you make to it is, inv- is valid because it's your story. Perfect. <laughs> and storytelling is an art. Good to know. It's something that's shared between individuals around a campfire, a good meal, maybe with some music. It all depends on the situation. So I have I have a question for you. How do they get along with the Odoric? I was just thinking that. Like I'm thinking, like, is there gonna be like a bromance between a Silva and an own and they alternate wrestling contests and telling stories to each other? Bing 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 bing. <laughs> We talked at length about how the Onarek like stories, and, and now we have a connection with another race, and I love it. The Silva are the only race on the entire continent of Alteran, and obviously the surrounding islands, who don't bear any ill will to the own whatsoever. They share their mutual love of storytelling. They enjoy engaging in wrestling matches with them. They don't agree with the... I'm going to take what I want because I'm stronger than you mentality, but it's not a, Hey, this is wrong. It's, you know, brother, there's a really a better way to be doing this, but Hey, you do the thing that you think you need to be doing. Now I'm just picturing every time an own tribe shows up at like 
a Silva Island or maybe like a city right off of the shore where you can take a boat to get to the rest of the archipelago where when that tribe of own shows up, it's just a big party <laughs> because the Silva, they're like, okay, you're here to take our food. Well, you can't take it from us if we just give it to you. Hey, you want to hear a cool story? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And that's just it too. They, they have a unspoken sort of mutual agreement where they can focus more on the storytelling aspect of their different cultures and never have an issue with one another. Now, that's not to say that there isn't, you know, an individual own or an individual tribe that gets in the way of that or tries to abuse that sort of common goodwill. But again, that's one individual or one individual tribe that does not necessarily mean that all of them are bad by nature to the Silva. Yeah, it just means that Mountain Jumper is a dick, but the rest of them are fine. <laughs> exactly. Because Mountain Jumper has chosen that path, and they can talk to Mountain Jumper as often as they want about how they should consider reconsidering the way they do things, but they're not going to force him to. It feels like the Silva would get along with really pretty much everybody as long as you don't go out of your way to make problems with them because like for example i'm sure that the barrelanks would love helping them craft their cities yeah they are a a race they are a people who the only way to negatively interact with is to not interact with if you remove yourself from the equation if you want nothing to do with them that's a mutual loss on both regards because you can't learn anything from the silva and the silva can't learn anything from you and that's the only i guess negative way to interact with them because they may not agree with the way that you as an individual or your people as a people do things but they would much rather hold a debate about it than tell you hey that's wrong do it our way they will gladly hear your opinions. They will gladly debate them. They will gladly offer advice, counsel, suggestions, but they will never flat out tell you what you're doing is wrong. You need to not do it because that's not their choice to make. It doesn't matter if you are just a fisherman who washed up on the shores of the island, if you're a fear-mongering warlord who's killed thousands of people. The Silva have no qualms with you. As long as you have no qualms with them, they will welcome you with open arms. They will give you food. They will tell you stories. They will listen to your story. So it's, so it's very difficult to rile them up or impossible. Very difficult, not completely impossible okay. because everyone has their limits and that's going to vary from person to person. But this is an entire species who has grown up around the ideas that each individual person is going to have their individual path of doing things and that other people's paths, you know, may not necessarily exactly line up, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing to learn there. And if you were to try and be a dick to them and light their houses on fire or march on them with weapons, if you're a human, they are stronger than you. They can just take your weapons. Yeah. If you get aggressive with them, they will stop your aggression. They will do everything they can to not hurt you, but they are not going to stand by and let you hurt them. So it's not a blind pacifism. No, 
they, they, they realize that violence and aggression are things that exist in the world. They choose not to subscribe to them because that's that many individuals who violence and aggression have no sway over. Neat. <laughs> I just like them. They're great. I like them too. That's why I made them. <laughs> so on other details about them, uh, they have their own instrument okay. that they crafted. It is an instrument that basically only a Silva can play because it is a fusion between a guitar, a violin, and a harp. And the reason that basically only they can play it is because it requires that level of dexterity of all four limbs that only something like an ape could have. I have no idea how it would actually sound in the real world because it's not an instrument that can actually exist in the real world because there's nothing that could actually play it. But I like to imagine it's very beautiful. I once actually found a video on YouTube and it was a clip from something called Animusic, which was like these CG rendered fictional instruments that were playing music. And I distinctly remember seeing one that reminded me of that instrument. I'll have to look it up again and see if I can find it to show you. It wouldn't surprise me. Because it was really freaking cool. But yeah, a harp slash guitar that you can also bow like a violin. It can be strummed. It can be plucked all at the same time. And it's theirs because music is pretty cool too. It's a great addition to a story or standalone on its own. If anyone who does like sound engineering wants to try and play around with samples and come up with what that might sound like i would be really interested to hear that yeah for sure yes but also good luck and i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you can pluck a violin and a cello and a bass and you could probably bow a guitar i'm not sure it would sound that great but you could probably attempt it <laughs> Sorry, that was, yeah, I don't know how that would go. Well, we have a guitar in the house and we have a bow. Hmm. <laughs> Raul would come in here and ask why we were murdering cats. Quite possibly. True. Disclaimer, we do not advocate or endorse murdering cats. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Uh, obviously, we all care about animals, so. And by we all, I mean, like. It's obvious coming from me, but but it should be obvious. I wouldn't be friends with anyone who would. Anyway, that was hyperbole for the sake of hyperbole. Don't worry. All, all cats are safe. <laughs> okay. So we know what they look like. We know how they approach the world. Um, we know that they play instruments and that they love telling stories. What else do we need to know about the Silva, I guess, is the... Well, they have a sort of a elegance in simplicity outlook on things because they do like to travel a lot, see the world. So obviously, while they have homes in the archipelago, they're not ridiculously fancy and particularly over-engineered, basically. It's very beautiful architecture, but very simple because they don't want to have too much material attachment holding them in one place. The things that matter most to them are things that they can pack up and take with them, like a favorite book of philosophy or 
you know, their instrument if they choose to take it with them or little trinkets, you know, rocks they're particularly fond of, a neat shell that they particularly enjoy looking at. And that is also a way to gain increased levels of favor with them is by giving them a little something to remember you by in your interactions with them. Some little trinket or doodad or what have you that they can carry with them and remember you in their travels. I love it. So with my earlier idea of the, the, the traveling merchants, you're not as likely to see one of them if they're making a career of it, but you would see their whole family going around. Quite possibly. It, it, it's really, it's going to depend on the individual and in the family. You know, some of them particularly enjoy investigating things like ancient ruins. Not really a place you want to bring your kids. Mm-hmm. But, it, but I was talking about like the, the merchants in particular, where you're just going around buying and selling goods and giving away stories for free. If that's their thing, then yeah. It might be an entire family operation. It might just be a few friends who decided to do it. You never know. But yeah, obviously don't bring your toddler into dangerous ruins. Yeah, it's not really a great idea. They might grab something they shouldn't have grabbed. Yeah, now if if your spouse and children want to come along with you and have an awesome camping trip over here where it's safe while you and your colleagues delve the ruins. Absolutely. They also don't dress very elegantly or, well, I shouldn't say elegantly. They don't wear a ton of clothes either. You will see at most a vest and loose shorts or maybe like a kilt-like wrap at best. Because, again, they have a very long-armed, short-legged, exaggerated physique that also needs to move very easily. So large, bulky clothes, not really their thing because they're too restrictive. Yeah. Which makes sense. But they're still going to be nicely made course so we've got a really good overview of all these really diverse and colorful races are there any other ways we can think of for how they interact with the world like we have example of yeah there's the own raids but also when they decide to punch their way through a forest it can clear out that land for farmers to come in and work it you know, the Baralanks help cultivate these great forests, and they have the interaction of the Verisilk and the healers. Would you often see a Baralanks coming to the city to offer healing, or would, they, would you instead have to seek them out? They would arguably set up shop, maybe for certain stints of time, uh, particularly in instances where let's say an individual doesn't feel like doing the kid thing. Obviously it's going to be much harder for them to go through pollination. If they're amongst a bunch of humans in a city, than out in their own natural habitat, so to speak. So if you're a city planner and you're thinking of ways to improve your town, it would be a good idea to build very high and very strong walls Preferably out of stone if you can get stone. Maybe ask the earth shells nicely if you get lucky enough to meet them, or otherwise just channel and transmute it. And you're going to want a lot of 
open natural spaces a lot of parks so that you're inviting to any barrelanks who want to come in and offer their medicines and their fabrics to your people because if your entire city is nothing but stone and cut wood they're probably not going to pay it any mind other than to say wow those guys are not friendly to us we should leave yeah pro culture tip never offer a barrelanks cut flowers yeah, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Unless you want them to offer you a human head in return, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you see this? This is what it's like. <laughs> this is what you're doing. Does this seem okay to you? What if you find a really pretty acorn and offer it to them? Did you did you just did you just did you just proposition them if you do that? <laughs> kind of sort of. I mean, it is a seed. The, like, it is an embryo, so... Uh, I think one of the things that I find also interesting... So the, we talked about the Earth Shells, and they like music. And the Silva play interesting music. Um, so, would... Not that they... they Obviously, they're really antisocial. But I can see a, a sort of relationship between the Earth Shells and the Silva because music is important. Um, You're not wrong. And that they, they don't want, they, obviously the Silva don't want to like invade on their space or take anything from them. They, they just like learning. So I, I can see that interaction being a lot easier than a lot of the other races that we've talked about so far. I mean, heck, I can see a group of Silva adventurers finding a really pretty place in the mountains and stopping to play some music in case there are any earth shells around so that they can enjoy it and then moving on. Like those are the kind of people that they seem like they are. Absolutely. Cool. That is 100% a thing they would and probably have in the past done. <laughs> I love it. And ac actually, now I'm thinking too, how easy is stone to get without channeling if, you're, if you risk disturbing the earth shells? Is that pretty much the only way to get it is with magic? Uh, with channeling and magic itself or I like that boulder. That is a nice boulder. Okay, this boulder is not people. We can take this one. We can take this one and use it. <laughs> as long as this boulder is not people, uh, and as long as you're not, I would assume, blasting it out of a out of a mountain, um, and you're you're harvesting something that's already not part of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, like because obviously geography is going to change from location to location you're going to have your highs and your lows your peaks and your valleys your mountains and your canyons if you're looking at like one of those little outcroppings of rock that you drive by on a you know old country mountainside road and there's like really not much on the other side of it it's probably a fairly safe bet that you might be able to take some of that stone and not face any serious repercussions if it's you know uh series of boulders that were part of a natural avalanche from or excuse me rock slide avalanche of snow uh from you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago that are just chilling up by a riverbank or were carried downstream by you know water you could probably take that without serious repercussions it's only when you really start trying to dig down into the earth and into the mountainsides that you start running into serious you know potential repercussions from the earth shells because that's the kind of careless destruction that could get somebody hurt on either side. 
So you're not really going to see quarrying as as much of a big industry on Zen or on on, on Altairan than it would be here on Earth. Uh, correct. The most you could hope for is the further away from the primary mountain range on Elterran, the less likely you are to run into an earth shell. But obviously, the harder you're going to have to work and potentially deeper you're going to have to try to go for stone. But there is a sort of diminishing return, basically. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, because the further... So so I guess as a, as a fact of, of soil science... Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's another one of my interests. Um, so, so mountains don't really have soil cover because it tends to slide down. Um, so the further away from mountains you get, the deeper your uh, soil profile is going to be. You're going to have a deeper level of soil before you get to that bedrock that you would use for building. And further, and, and thank you, by the way, I love that we have someone who knows these things. <laughs> I know a little bit about a lot of different um, uh, fields of biology or, or of, you know, and, that, and that's part of my, my degree is that, that we need to know a little bit about a lot of things so that we can problem solve um, for, for the things that we face. Um, <laughs> climate change is a real thing. Um, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that so so knowing a little bit about a lot of different things actually makes me really happy because then I can I can get an idea of of how a lot of different things work mm-hmm. um, and if you if you talk to me before I took my soil science class I was grouchy about about taking class about dirt and now I would like to take more soil science classes that's that's something I'm actually interested in um, and I think now that I have a better understanding of more things I would understand soil a little more I, you know and that's that's just kind of how it goes in this in this sort of uh, this discipline so so yeah, so we we see okay, so there's less quarrying going on practically practically none if you're smart. I'm sure people over time have tried it and some of them probably got away with it cuz they got lucky and others probably did not get away with it. Um and they probably did did not live to tell the tale. Um <laughs> logging, I'm guessing like from the way you described like the barrelanks knowing and not liking stuff like people cutting down trees i'm guessing that it still happens but it probably like people try to at least be a little bit more careful with it and if they're in a position of privilege where they know how to contact the barrel lengths they're able to ask for grown structures rather than cutting wood down true and logging does happen it is still a trade but they are very much conscious of the fact that it needs to be done sustainably as with our own planet so it's yeah it's very much looking like if you're going to have a big city which you need for trade and also protection because you do have own deciding hey that guy has it and i want it more than he does um you need things like big walls to keep you safe it seems like pretty much the only way that you're going to get the level of urban development necessary is with the assistance of magic. Correct. Uh, For instance, as we mentioned, transmuting one thing to another or altering it. 
uh, for instance, you wouldn't necessarily need to make all of your stone wall out of clay or mud or wood, as it may be, if you have a decent supply of things like sand or a bunch of boulders and rocks. Because while something that is transmuted from one substance to another will never be as perfect as its natural form, you can, let's say, take a bunch of boulders and make one solid rock out of them. Because you're not altering what it actually was, but you're altering its form. Yeah, you're not altering its its actual, like, atomic structure. You're just altering its its physical presence. Like it's, it's, it's look, it's still a bunch of rocks. It's just now a bunch of rock. Yeah. (laughs) That's really interesting for like picturing how architecture would, would develop in these cities, because if you're limited to, obviously you have to have magic to help you shape these materials and probably to find some of them in the first place, how much, how many channelers, magic users you have working on your structures versus how many traditional tradespeople you have using tradition, like what we would consider traditional materials and methods is going to affect how your city looks. Definitely. The reason why we, why we build cities the way we do is because of our cultures. Obviously a city in one place is not going to look the same as a city on the other side of the planet. Um, our, our cultures kind of inform how we build things. Um, also, your your point about sand just makes me picture a city on, like, say, a coastal city where the soil is very sandy. Their outer walls being made pretty much purely of quartz. That would be cool. Because that's what they have. <laughs> it's a sandcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely an interesting little slice of a planet. It's got plenty of different peoples on it. Uh, some interesting creatures, too, for that matter. Uh, we didn't even really have a chance to get into wonderful creations such as the boar. That's uh, B-O-R-E. <laughs> we definitely will get a chance to go over those. But, um, but yeah, like, look at all the stuff that we literally just talked about with architecture and industries, and that is solely from taking the people that were placed in the world and pursuing the lines of cause and effect. If it's hard for me to get metal and stone, what happens? Yeah. If some of the trees are sentient and don't like being cut down, but I need wood to build my city, what happens? And all of these cause and effect things sort of drive interactions between these races. And that is one of the ways that you get an actual story to tell is by forcing, well, I mean, not by forcing interactions, but by by figuring out where those interactions would happen and why. Yeah, and you don't need 10 pages of exposition describing all of this. You can have, like, you're obviously doing all this thinking on the back end, but then on camera, you may just have a Silva playing music for a bunch of kids on the street and he's wearing a big backpack and you can tell, oh, this guy's an explorer. He's just passing through, but he's sharing stories with the neighborhood children on his way. And you've instantly set the tone for that scene. Right. And you've done that by showing rather than just giving exposition. So you you would talk about the song that he's playing and how how difficult it would be possibly, how difficult it would be for any anyone else. Like it, you would basically just say this is this is a distinctly Silva instrument that's that's 
that you're seeing. And you mention that he looks like he's a traveler. And then you've done all of this, this world building. So later when you bring the, this race back up, um, if you, if your characters go to the archipelago, then you already know a little bit about the, the Silva from the interaction that the characters had at the beginning. So you sort of introduce them, but you don't have to lore dump that minute. Um, there's, there's no reason to tell rather than show what's happening. Yeah, one, one appearance by a sideline character in, you know, the passing description of a town does not mean that you need to go t- into the complete and total history and genealogy of the people. Exactly. And you can have all that stuff written down, but I think it is a, a mistake to just just lore dump whenever you have, uh, whenever you introduce a new race. Like you don't, I've I've seen it before and it, I can't read it. Yeah, it's it's not good for your main canon. Now, if you have a wiki, if you have a companion book, release it there because the people who want it will go crazy for it. And the people who don't care as much and some of your readers will not, that's okay, can ignore it. Definitely. It's all about that balance. <laughs> yep, I think I think the Silva might be my new favorite. It's okay. Oops. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Just wait until we get out in the rest of the world. Oh, the things you'll see. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, how about those? Uh, how about those fan questions, guys? Yeah, we have another one from our Discord. Um, if you are not on our Discord, it is. Uh, it's a pretty fun place to be. By the time this goes live, there should be the website up and you will be able to join it right from the main page, rhinobot.net. Look in the sidebar. Exactly. So um, from the Discord, we do have uh, a question. Um, So it is, uh, any tips for creating races to exemplify certain traits of your world without resorting to planet of the hats? Um, The examples that were given were like, all dwarves are short and have are bearded blacksmiths, um, and all elves are stuck up and and live forever. Um, it's it's uh, viewed as a personality, but it isn't. So it's not a personality. It's just a hat they wear. Um, and yeah, I guess any tips on creating a race without putting them into a pre-designed hat? I mean, that's basically been these past several episodes is how do we take an aspect of the world or even just an aspect of the sliver of the world and use that to help highlight it. Every single one of the races that I have presented to you so far, they all interact with that same network of energy that courses through the planet. They all do it in a different way and to varying degrees of success, and it all has an impact on the place they live. Exactly. And and yes, we've gone over broad strokes of this is generally how these people interact with each other or de- generally how they, they their culture is, is formed, but it is not, that's not on the individual level. We're, we are talking broad strokes. So on the individual level, they may vary on, on how much or little they participate in their culture. Um, they're, 
is always variation at the individual level that we don't see at a population level. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see more of that when you start exploring characters. You know, you've got your broad strokes, you've got your generalizations. All of those things are things that should inform the way you write your viewpoint characters, but not define it. For example, we see that when the Silva and the Own get together, it's a party, except, oh, Cliff Jumper is a dick because he tried to push around a Silva that one time. Exactly. Well, does Cliff, does, does Mountain Jumper learn from that? Does, I think I just said Cliff Jumper, who's a Transformer. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. He's probably dead by now anyways. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert, Cliff Jumper dies a lot. Um, but yeah, so Mountain Jumper was a dick to the Silva during one of these parties. Do do the Silva step in and try to teach him better? Does his own tribe beat the crap out of him for messing up the party? Like, <laughs> and and the next time they interact, do they have the same interaction? So so has uh, Mountain Jumper changed since the last time they interacted with each other? We see with the with the Baralanks how some of them are such great healers. One of them might live in the city park all the time and very rarely, if ever, go back to their native forest. You might have some who are like, no, I'm staying out here. You can have my medicine, but you have to find me first. Exactly. Or or some of them may not may not always uh make like healing salves and instead they they make more potent chemicals um drugs you're talking about drugs no i'm i'm talking about drugs sorry guys (laughs) that's i mean to be fair well i I guess alcohol technically is a drug but man the hops and barley yeah exactly exactly or wine could Um, do wine as well wine yep um yeah so so they maybe they don't all excel at healing maybe they're like they, as a general rule, the race is good at healing, but you may have individuals who are better at other tasks, like growing hops and barley and making beer, because why would you not? Um, <laughs> because every civilization practically ever has had some form of fermented beverage. To, to be fair, to be fair, <laughs> and I'm going to put this out here right now. This is something that literally just occurred to me from this conversation. If you want the good mead, you go to the Baralanks because nobody knows honey like the flowers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, so in, in terms of avoiding the planet of the hats, you know, like we said, we're talking in broad strokes here, but maybe when you're describing your background characters, your NPCs, you give each one of them a little bit of individuality. That Silva adventure on the street playing music for the kids with the backpack and a scar on his right shoulder. Or, you know, give them a look. And you don't have to go through this Silva's entire family history and everything they've ever done and everything that he ever did to get from the archipelago to this random village in the upper northwest of the continent. But give them a little bit of something a speech pattern something that in your mind makes this person an individual and it doesn't have to be a consequential detail at all just something to make them a person right. and it and it doesn't have to be 
Well, and it doesn't have to be like um, you're not making them into uh, capital S special. Um, you can just have their 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 backstory include something that may not happen to everyone, and then that has informed how they interact with the world uh, in your current time. Um, and you don't have to, yeah, like Carrie said, you don't have to go through their entire history when you introduce them because it's very unlikely that someone is going to walk up to to a Silva who has a big scar and go, what is this scar? Of course, a Silva would probably not mind telling you the story because it's a story. Um, but uh, but it's not very likely, it's not very polite. It's, it's just not going to happen. Did I ever tell you how I got these scars? Exactly. And you, you never know because it's an individual. That might be the one story that this Silva does not want to tell. Maybe that part of his story is private. Exactly. Or something he only shares with people whose path has merged closely enough with his own that he feels comfortable telling it. You know, the the important thing is, like, for example, all dwarves are short, have beards, and are blacksmiths. If you're writing a book and you have dwarves, throw in a clean-shaven dwarf every now and then. Or maybe a young one who can't grow a beard and part of his personality is he's really upset about it. Or maybe having a cut beard is, is like, shameful. Like, you're, you're not supposed to have a beard that's short because everybody grows long beards. So, so you can have that be part of their culture as when they do something bad, they get their beard cut off or something. Yeah, or maybe, maybe facial hair isn't what matters to these particular dwarves. Maybe they like keeping their hair in really long braids. Dwarves with dreadlocks, you heard it here first. Yeah, this tribe over here of dwarves has dreadlocks. This one over here does braids. This one over here does beards. It's part of their culture, and you get a dialogue going with that. But I would say a lot of the books that I've read where this happens, all of the individuals are treated as pretty much the same. They all have the same stock standard dialogue lines that you would find in World of Warcraft NPCs. You know how, like, when you close a dialogue window with a dwarf, they all say, keep your feet on the ground. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. Welcome to Corneria. Yeah, so my advice would remember would be to remember that broad strokes are just that. Monica and I are both Caucasian females who were born and raised in the United States of America. But her path is very different of mine. We're both individuals. Remember that your people are not individual, that they are individuals and that they are not cardboard cutouts. And I think that a lot of the problem will solve itself just with that. Definitely. Looking past the stereotypes is how you, is how you actually gain an understanding of how other people interact with each other and where they're coming from like putting yourself into someone else's shoes is how you start understanding them so putting yourself into your character's shoes trying to understand the world around them really does help keep it from being flat and with no depth or dimension Mm -hmm. um, which is what planet of the hats inevitably gives you yeah and like for example i see it a lot with With, for example, using the dwarves as an example again, I very rarely see any female dwarfs in books where there's Planet of the Fats going on. 
Definitely. Which leads people to think there are no female dwarves. We all just spring out of holes in the ground. <laughs> I would say if, if, you know, gender diversity where appropriate, obviously, like, for example, that's not going to be much of an issue with a bear lynx because they're all kind of gender fluid. But if you have a species where there's a gender binary or trinary or whatever, show diversity in there. Don't refer to all of your NPCs of that race as the same pronoun, unless you have a reason that only this gender is interacting with other species. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's just quick theory craft something. Let's say that somewhere out there on Zenthuru, there is a race of people that evolved from bees. That is going to be a very gender-specific culture of people because there's literal division between what the females are capable of and what the males are capable of as a species. Mm -hmm. But if you're writing humans, give gender diversity. If you have a species where there's a range of skin, hair, fur, scale, color, be sure and show that diversity. Don't make everyone the same gender, the same color, the same species. Oh, look, it's another platinum blonde green-eyed elf. Exactly. Just by showing a spectrum of sexualities, if you're showing a wedding happening in the background, a variety of fashions, having diversity in your world just in the most basic common sense is going to avoid hat syndrome a lot of the time. Definitely. And, and thinking about the things that we've, we've brought up, like cause and effect and, and the, the way the cultures interact with each other will also help you to make them individual. Mm -hmm. And little things too, like little inconsequential details. Like you have a shopkeeper that you're never going to mention again. He's got a coin in his hand that he's constantly twiddling there. He just has an individual trait. Move on. But it's something to show just a little glimpse of these people's personalities and of their lives. Because you don't really need more than that. Yeah, yeah. Little glimpses are, are enough. Um, unless you're going to, unless you are in that particular race's homeworld or homeland and you're, and you're actually exploring their culture through the eyes of the main character, there's no real reason to go super in-depth with, with the culture you're you know yeah because you've got like you've got your background npcs you've got your side characters you've got your main characters that are not viewpoint characters and then you've got your viewpoint characters and each one of them requires a different amount of detail but giving little inconsequential details to to the background npcs just a little dab of paint here and there that's all you need and just some uh happy little trees over here we'll paint <laughs> one more because everybody needs a friend thinking about the bees um because of course i'm thinking about the bees uh <laughs> like so you would see if some if a race evolved from bees they're humanoid bee like creatures you would very very rarely ever see a male ever there i mean if you're basing them off of bees that live here you only see bees that are male for a few months out of the year uh, only when they are needed for reproduction, and that's it. Most of the the worker bee, like they're so they're drones. Those are those are male bees. They're drones. Female bees uh, collect pollen and they uh, give they care for the young and 
and they do they do a lot um and there's only one queen so basically all of the bees in the all of the female bees are sisters and the male bees only live for a few months out of the year so you would very rarely ever interact with a male bee person i guess um (laughs) so so that would be an interesting way to to develop that culture um so you wouldn't actually necessarily see a gender diversity in that um you would definitely see more females than males. Yeah, and if you do happen to see a male Vespian wandering around town, your characters are going to comment on it. Exactly. And like they're they're probably in search of a new queen because they don't because their queen maybe their queen died. Um or maybe their hive was attacked by a by a badger because because honey badger don't care. <laughs> because badgers like to shake bee nests apparently uh and those are called hives monica anyway sorry i had i had to talk about the bees more biology facts for you guys that's that's what i'm here for really biology facts are important for world building but i think that pretty much does it for this time so next time we will be discussing the history of the continent of Altairan, where all these wonderful people live, and how it shaped them, and also the state of the world that our characters are living and exploring in now. That's correct. And if you'd like to contact us, you can do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at Rhinobot Studios. We'll be happy to answer fan questions on air, but since we do record well in advance uh please be advised that it may take several episodes for your question to appear in the show if we don't accidentally answer the question in the course of the first several episodes of the show like this one and uh yeah on that note uh, until next time uh you guys take care of yourselves and uh happy writing bye bye This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.